Welcome to our Catechism class. It's a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help you learn Christian doctrine with a warm and practical application. Each lesson has its own study guide, and the web link to find that guide can be found in the episode notes. Okay, let's start the lesson. The Catechist in Lord's Day 25 has been giving us some general instruction on the sacraments of the Church before he moves on to discuss the sacraments individually and in more detail in the following Lord's Days. We have learned that the sacraments do not save us, but to the man or woman who has been granted faith to believe in Christ, they are reinforcements of the Gospel message, because they point us to Christ who through his death on the cross washed away all of our sins. We looked at a difficult passage from 1 Peter to demonstrate that the outward application of water only washes the outer skin. It is God himself who works on the conscience through the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us and make us willing to trust Christ as Saviour. Then in our last lesson, We learned that baptism and the Lord's Supper make us a wonderful promise, the promise of the gospel, the good news of forgiveness of sin in Christ, just as circumcision and the sacrifice of the Passover lamb in the Old Testament pointed forward to a sinless Saviour slain for sinners, promising redemption. There is one more thing we must do before we move on to look at baptism and the Lord's Supper, and it concerns the number of sacraments that are in the Church. Here's question 68 in the Catechism. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the New Covenant? And the answer in the Catechism is two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. You're listening to the Semper Reformata podcast with Bob McAvoy. Now, before we go any further, please pause the recording and read these two very familiar passages of Scripture. They are Matthew 28, 19-20 and 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26. Matthew 28, 19-20 and 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26. And when you've finished reading, please restart the podcast or the CD. Our Catechism tells us that Christ has instituted two sacraments in the Church. But the Catechist doesn't go into too much detail. We have to do a little bit of extra work on that. So we're going to discover why Protestants only have two sacraments, why some evangelicals don't have any sacraments at all, and why Roman Catholics think there are seven sacraments. Let's go then. So there's only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why just two? 
Well, firstly, because Jesus only instituted these two ordinances to be forever a memorial in his church. In the two passages that you read a few moments ago, we can actually read the words of Jesus as he set out the only visible signs to point to him. In Matthew 28, 19-20, we have what is called the Great Commission. We're to go. We're not to remain seated in a nice building. We're to go out everywhere, knowing that the Lord will go with us, and we're to make disciples by teaching them and to baptise them. Jesus said so. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26 Paul recalls how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, quoting his words, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So you can clearly see that baptism and communion were set in the church by Jesus himself. But also sacraments, or indeed anything that we do in worship, must be specifically commanded by God alone. Men, or even popes, councils, churches, or synods, not even vision-casting leaders can invent elements of worship as and when they please. Our worship is commanded by God. And when it is not commanded by God, it is unacceptable to him. It is strange fire. Here's an Old Testament warning from Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1 to 2. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. So we have the biblical record telling us that Jesus, who is God, commands us to baptise and to gather around the Lord's table until he returns. These two sacraments are instituted by Christ. They are commanded by Christ and they are blessed by Christ. And in his commentary on the Catechism, Zacharias Ursinus points to the shadows of these sacraments in the Old Testament. He reminds us that baptism is the New Testament replacement of circumcision in the Old Testament, and that communion is the New Testament replacement of the Passover lamb. But wait, maybe you go to an evangelical church where no one even mentions the word sacraments. Instead, when they talk about baptism and communion, they will simply refer to them as ordinances. Here's chapter 28 from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution, appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. Recently, I asked some people who hold to that Reformed Baptist Confession to explain this for me. 
Most consistently said that there were two reasons why these sacraments were referred to in the Baptist Confession as ordinances. They say that baptism and communion are ordinances because Christ ordained them, and that baptism and communion are not referred to as sacraments because that word is so heavily associated with Catholic sacramentalism. Now, both of those reasons are perfectly valid. And while the terminology used in the 1689 Confession may differ from the Heidelberg Catechism and from the Westminster Standards, the underlying theology does not. We all agree that these ordinances point us away from ourselves to Christ, who alone can save, and that he only instituted these two ordinances and no others. But let's move away from the Reformed perspective just for a moment or two and consider two other views, and I have two examples. A church that I once served as a minister used to have three ordinances mentioned in its statement of faith. They included baptism, communion, and the anointing of the sick with oil. That last ordinance was based on James 5, where James tells us that a sick person should call for the elders of the church, who would anoint the patient with oil and pray for them, and the prayer of faith would save the sick. I will not go into that last phrase just yet. So with the requirement for a sacrament to be instituted by Jesus alone removed, one instituted by James could be added. Thankfully, that church has removed the third ordinance, and now they only mention baptism and communion. And the Salvation Army have no sacraments or ordinances at all in the biblical sense, neither baptism nor communion. Here's their very own statement from their website. The Salvation Army has never said it is wrong to use sacraments, nor does it deny that other Christians receive grace from God through using them. Rather, the army believes that it is possible to live a holy life and receive the grace of God without the use of physical sacraments and that they should not be regarded as an essential part of becoming a Christian. Well, they may not be an essential part of becoming a Christian in every case, but they are commanded by Christ, commanded as part of our regular worship. And who are we to neglect a divine command? But let's move on, though, and look at the really big issue. Are there not seven sacraments? The Reformers were concerned to stress that there were just these two sacraments to counter the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church, which, of course, believed then and still believes to this day that there are seven sacraments. As well as baptism and communion, they add confirmation, holy orders, penance, Extreme unction. Matrimony. Now let's think about why we don't recognise these as proper ordinances in the church. Confirmation is basically the laying on of hands. Now obviously that was a practice used in the Bible. For example in Acts chapter 13, verse 2 to 4. It is used as an act of commissioning for Christian service. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, The Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, 
for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Laying on of hands was also practiced during prayer for healing. Acts 28 and verse 8. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed, and laid his hands on him and healed him. Yet in Catholicism, this morphs into a formal sacrament, where baptised people, usually around the age of eight or nine years, though not exclusively so, are brought before the bishop who, who formally confirms them in their faith. They may claim that it is a reenactment of Acts 8 and 17, where they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. But modern confirmation is entirely different from the practice in the early church. The practice in Acts was spontaneous. It was reacting to circumstances, not a formal ceremony that is promoted as conveying grace. It's important to say that some churches, Anglicans and Lutherans, for example, also hold confirmations. While Reformed Christians do not agree with this practice, it should be said that Anglicans and Lutherans do not consider their confirmation to be a sacrament. So confirmation. Holy Orders is another sacrament in Catholicism, the sacrament of ordination into the Catholic priesthood. In the 1980s, I had an account in a bank in Dremore in County Down, and I had an appointment to speak to the manager. He asked me my occupation, and I replied, I'm a minister. And he slowly wrote down on the form, Clark in Holy Orders. I assume he must have been a Catholic, or where else would you hear such language? Because Catholics think that ordination is a sacrament, it is an inviolable sacrament, it works on its own. Remember that Latin phrase, ex opere operatum, the work works. They believe that once a man is ordained into the priesthood, he is a priest forever, no matter what kind of life he lives thereafter. You could imagine the problems that has caused. It's the root of the priestly child abuse issues that the Catholic Church has had for many years. A priest who has committed the most egregious sin is still a priest and was often simply moved to a new location where he would begin his grooming activities all over again. So confirmation, holy orders, penance. We all know that Catholics go to confession. We know that some go more frequently than others. They will go into a wee booth and they were meant to be anonymous and they will confess their sins to a priest who will then assess the seriousness of their sins and appoint some form of penalty. Perhaps some prayers or fasting, for example, and that's supposed to make redress for their wrongdoings. It's totally wrong in every point. We do not need to confess our sins to a priest. We can approach the throne of grace for help. We confess our sins to God, not to another sinful man. And when we do confess our sins, we know that they are already forgiven. Not because we've said some extra prayers, but because Christ has already paid the debt for all of those sins on the cross. Then there's extreme unction, often referred to as the last rites. A priest will visit a person who is dying. 
He will hear that person's confession. He will offer them the consecrated wafer, the Eucharist, if they're able to receive it. He'll anoint them with oil. It's a perversion of that verse we noted earlier in James 5. James 5 and 14 says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Do you see the problem there? When James instructed the early Christians to anoint the sick with oil, it was for their healing, not for their death. The Lord shall raise him up. So there's no biblical warrant for the last rites. And then marriage is a sacrament in Catholicism. In Ephesians 5, Paul describes marriage as a mystery. Ephesians 5, 31-32 For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Catholics consider the efficacy of baptism and communion, their conveyance of grace to the recipient, they claim to be a mystery. So they conclude that because Paul talks about marriage being a great mystery, marriage also must be a sacrament since it's a mystery. Now note that none of those extra sacraments are instituted by Jesus. None are commanded by God. Therefore, we reject them completely. And with our catechist and with the scripture, we permit no other symbols or ordinances within our worship but baptism and communion. And anything else is strange fire and will be rejected by God. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.